Welcome to a new episode of UCU Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers and tutors here at University College Utrecht. And I'm here today with Chulme Mugamba, Muzjamba. I'm so sorry, this must happen a lot to you and I do apologize. How do I pronounce your last name correctly? Muzjamba. Muzjamba. Okay, um, would you care to introduce yourself? Yes, so yeah, my name is uh, Cholwe Muziamba, um, and I'm from Zambia. I've lived in Holland uh, for I think about eight years now, eight nine years now. Yeah, uh, so it's been a while, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm also teaching at UCU, um, a tutor as well, um, and I live in Amsterdam for now. Yeah. Okay. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Um, let me see. I could. So I'm very interested in what you did before your master because yeah. the most recent information I could find was your master, and that was a master at the London School of Economics. But what came yeah. before that? Yeah, so I studied in Zambia. Uh, mm -hmm. I studied at the University of Zambia, um, and it was sort of a, a liberal uh, arts kind of a, a program, though it was not structured formally as a liberal arts program. So I, I studied uh, economics as my major, and then I did uh, development studies, demography, philosophy, political science in the process, uh, but economics was my major. And then after that, um, I, I, I worked uh, in Zambia. Uh, uh, I worked for an organization um, called COMESA, mm -hmm. so Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa. So it's sort of, uh, uh, a common market between uh, countries in the south and in the east of Africa, and it is headquartered in in, in Zambia. Um, and they had this mission of going into a customs union. Okay. Uh, so I worked under a department called um, ComEd, uh, which was in a way trying to compensate countries for opening up their borders in terms of trade, uh, the, the loss that they faced by giving up their taxes on the borders in joining this customs union. Yeah. So how much compensate them? So I worked for that uh, for a bit, and then did a, a bit of uh, consultancy with the World Bank, um, also in Zambia, but focusing on Zambia, Malawi, Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. uh, um, and then um, that was the economics part of it. And uh, I don't think I enjoyed the economics part very much. <laughs> and so I decided to join what was um, known as um, global health. Mm -hmm. uh, Global Health Co Fellowship. So it is uh, run by uh, Barbara Bush, who is the daughter of George Bush. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I joined that fellowship, and uh, we were, I think, one of the first Zambians to actually join the, uh, the fellowship. Um, so we were hosted a bit in the States, um, and then I just fell in love with Global Health, then went back to Zambia to work in Global Health. Um, and then uh, from that moment on, I, I, I just liked the concept of health. Um, and, 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 and through that, uh, I sort of started drifting away a bit from economics, even though that was my former training. Um, but I also, at the same time, became a little bit uh, bored with the idea of working in a formal uh, job of some sort, like, you know, like mm -hmm. office nine to five, yeah. the routine or the rat race, as others would call it, that became a little bit boring for me. And I thought there's got to be more to life. Uh, and where I come from in Zambia, there's this tendency um, where you finish your university, you get your house, life starts, get family, and the, the routine never ends. 
And I thought to myself, there's ha there has to be more to life. And I started looking outside, um, uh, see what I can do that to be interesting. Yeah. And I thought maybe going for further studies would be uh, an interesting idea. And so uh, I applied uh, some places outside uh, of Zambia and I got a few admissions here and there. And then I decided to to choose uh, to go and study at the LSE. Uh, so I moved to London then to, uh, to study at the LSE. Um, and there I, I studied uh, health community and development. Um, okay. and I think... Maybe, is it okay if I go a couple of steps back? Yeah. yeah. Why did you originally choose to study economics? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, good question. Um, so I was born in a very little town, mm -hmm. uh, a very little town in the outskirts of what we call uh, the, well, in the banks of the Zambezi River, right? Um, and so it's so remote, the area, to the extent that you don't, you don't see a lot of what is happening in the labor market. You actually are unaware. What you know is there's a teacher, uh, there's a fisherman who you only, only see because you're living close to water. There's a doctor and nurse, and, and that is all. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, you do not know, right? And so, in fact, I always thought I was going to be a doctor, a medical doctor, that is to say. Uh, and everybody thought I was going to be a medical doctor because I, I was, I think, particularly uh, gifted in biology as well. So I, I, it was always uh, my favorite, and I, I tend to perform very well. Um, and so when I, I, I qualified to go to university, our, our system is structured in such a way that I, I think it's, it's absolutely because we at the time we had just two universities, um, mm -hmm. and um, by government law you are you are sponsored to go to university once you qualify to be at university. Okay. Oh, that's so good. Uh, that was the case then. How things have changed drastically these days. So all you needed to do was to get good grades at the time, and then when you get good grades, then you get automatic government scholarship. And I got government scholarship, and I, I went to apply, uh, uh, and I went to apply for medicine. <laughs> actually at university then when i was there i talked to somebody who had just done who had just started working as a resident medical doctor who was a distant uh, relative and she told me that the glamour that you see in medicine is actually not there i mean it's celebrated <laughs> yeah. uh, it's busy it's not well rewarding in our country um and i just don't think based on what you tell me as your main uh, priorities in life it's it's something that you're looking for. And, and then I said, well, what, what else can I do? And then she was like, well, just do law and economics. People who do law and economics make a lot of money. And I'm like, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I like the idea of making money. It sounds good. Uh, I mean, and, and again, obviously, the situation demanded that we make money because of uh, the extended families we come from and how you'd see an opportunity to assist family if you make a lot of money. So, uh, and it was indeed the case that... Um, people who had done economics and law tended to earn much more in our yeah. society. So I thought that was a good idea. I didn't know much about economics. I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, but then I, instead of applying for medicine, I applied uh, to, 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 to do, uh, because you don't get in economics and law at, at first. So you, you have to compete all together in first year. And then those that do well go into law and economics. Yeah. So I, I'd applied in what we call the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, and then it's after that that I qualified to join to do economics. 
but I liked to do it at the time. I enjoyed studying economics, uh, and so I studied economics with other things, so um, philosophy and, and whatnot. So that's how I found myself in economics. Not that I ever planned to do economics, but then yeah. just because I was taught there was this financial incentive that you can look for when you do this thing. <laughs> but, uh, that's how I got myself in economics. Yeah, and I see that a lot among our students as well. I often have students, because I teach economics here at University College Utrecht, um, and I often have students who are indeed choosing the course because their parents are then less concerned that they will have a useless diploma, if that makes sense. Because they somehow feel if you do economics, at least you have something on there that will yes. get you a job, which I always find an absolutely bizarre type of reasoning. But yeah, there is this idea sometimes that it, it's, yeah, I don't know, that it'll get you money or a job or something. I'm not sure. But because um, you moved from then from a little town. Because I imagine yeah. the university, if it's only in two places, I imagine those are bigger cities. Yeah, so um, so yeah, then uh, I went to uh, study in the University of Zambia, which is uh, in the capital city of um, uh, Zambia, Lusaka, mm -hmm. it's a bigger city. Because what was uh, the transition like? Because that must have been a completely different lifestyle. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, because, um, I mean, uh, it was, <laughs> it was a big change. And having to go to school in a big, city the destruction uh uh the lifestyle you know you, i was used because i went to a boarding school at, at high school which is also in a, in a remote place but there was nothing to distract you so there was just focus and whatnot and then you go to a big city uh you discover the life the nightlife you discover all these things <laughs> that, you know, yeah. life and then for the first time you're getting an allowance from the state uh so you have money and uh, uh opportunities so the distraction was there, but the excitement as well was there. Um, but I found I made very good friends um, at, at the time who have remained um, my friends to this day. And um, so it was also a very exciting moment to uh, to be in a different environment, to learn in a different environment, uh, to interact with different people uh, from different parts of the country because our country is huge. Uh, so you have people coming from different parts that speak language that you don't know, and then you meet at this university and um and it was very politicized the university at the time it's very political um and i was very much involved in uh in the politics of the of the student unions although i didn't join the student union i ran a radio program um that was talking about social life but not just at university but also um uh, about uh, our, our our country's politics and that and it, 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 it was very popular uh, radio program it was a daily radio program uh, so we analyzed a lot of political issues uh, we hosted a lot of politicians there and uh, and one of the regular guests on our on our program uh, is actually now the president of zambia who was elected uh like last year so it it, it, it used to be at the time a very important uh, launching platform for people who uh, are now in politics in Zambia. So it was it was uh, it was fun and uh, very fiery and and very engaging and uh, yeah the, the the politics back home at the time were were interesting because I actually when I was there I also thought I was going to be a politician at, at some point because <laughs> you'd see that a lot of people pass through this route end up being politicians. So I thought maybe I should join politics at some point. But uh, yeah, glad I didn't. <laughs> that <route. laughs> um, but, but it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, this kind of um, atmosphere I was in, but also very 
uh, enlightening and challenging in discovering things in the world and questioning mm -hmm. a lot of things around us, questioning reality, questioning uh, hierarchies and uh, inequalities in our society. Um, uh, and also because our colonial history is British, then we start talking about all these colonial issues then. So it was a, it was a process of learning uh, and then learning at the same time. That's it, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really one of the big the big changes that a university can get going. No matter what university you go to, it'll always be a hub for people to come to from all these different places. And just being with people from different backgrounds and different ways of thinking is just such a mind opener in many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it can be so incredibly exciting as well, for sure. Um, so at some point you made that switch from economics and you realized, okay, I really don't want to continue with economics. I want to continue with health. Do you remember if there was there a specific moment when you had that realization or a specific event that happened? What made you switch? What made you realize, no, health, that's what I want to focus on? Yeah, I mean, even when I was still at uh, University of Zambia, I, I, I joined a program which was focused a lot on sexual reproductive health and rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I found that very exciting to work around real issues because yeah. I was sort of very delusioned in the world of economics and because it was very neoclassical, yeah. how unrealistic it was. And then here I find myself dealing with real issues um, in this program that we had on the side. This was an extracurricular program. program. So I, I found uh, that I actually liked a lot to to work in such a space. And that was actually some of which helped me to jump into the global health co-fellowship that then I went um, to sort of do in the States a bit and then back in Zambia to work. And then I just realized, that, yes, I, it feels like I'm working with people and and you can see the connection. It's not just theoretical. Yeah. You're thinking about solutions. How do we help these people, not just some assumed uh, strategy for some assumed people in some country. But these are the people who need assistance. They have this situation. How can we help them? Yeah, and so that for me became uh, very real in 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 my contribution, and I thought, if I have to um, help my country, I'd rather help my country with people I'm seeing, and no matter how few they are, yeah. that is more satisfying than just talking. Uh, they they are <laughs> just theoretical concepts. Yeah. Some yeah. Homo yeah. economicus who's very rational somehow. Yeah. yeah. And and why sexual reproductive health? Um, because we 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 had a lot of um, at at the time growing up in Zambia, we had a big challenge with the HIV crisis. Um, this, this was the era uh, when um, antiretroviral treatment was not available, um, so we we had a big challenge on our hands, and so it was the biggest emergency uh, at the time. Yeah. So our, our focus automatically. Uh, went to what was most important and that was uh, HIV. And around HIV, we realized that, well, it affects, it affected specific groups. So those were women um, and then uh, sexual minorities uh, for different reasons. So then you begin to get the interest in actually dealing just beyond HIV. Yeah. How do you deal with other issues that sort of make people more at risk uh, to HIV contraction? And uh, so, hence the the the, the, uh, the, the, the sexual reproductive health and rights. Um, yeah, so that's how it all connected together. Yeah, and what was because um, what's the situation now in Zambia? Is is it 
still as bad? Has it improved? Or what, what does it look like? Well, thankfully, um, uh, and I think partly because we, we at the time, not just me, but we, I mean, a lot of people who are involved in uh, sexual productive health uh, pushed a lot. Um, there was a lot of push in, in making antiretroviral treatment available mm -hmm. uh, to people. But as, as you know, I don't know if you know about this, um, there was a big push against making it available by pharmaceutical companies in the West yeah. because it was a profitable business model for them to keep them out of reach of Africa. And if Africans needed to buy, they needed to buy it at, at high cost. Yeah. Um, but India was producing cheaper antiretroviral treatment, but we were not allowed to buy from India because of patent issues. Um, so through that that match, that force, uh, at some point, yeah, pharmaceutical companies yielded and and now our governments can buy cheaper generic antiretroviral treatment from India and then can provide to people. And now it's so people can access freely antiretroviral mm -hmm. treatment. And because of that, we have had a tremendous reduction in, uh, in incidence rates. Yeah. Um, uh, and then people live normally these days. You know, it's, it's, yeah. and, 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 and actually there's no uh, stigma or discrimination at all. We have managed it very well. Um, HIV uh, is not looked at as a oh, this scary, and because I see that a lot in Holland, in how people have conversation about HIV, it's still seen as this very scary thing. It's just yeah. death sentence. Uh, whereas, in I think we have advanced a lot back home. Um, in just yeah, it's just like any other illness, and it's manageable. And people live healthy. Like it's just a condition that you have to take medication every now and then, but it's, it's perfectly uh, healthy and. Uh, and we have managed to send that message across. And because of antiretroviral treatment, transmission is cut. So uh, that has tremendously reduced um, uh, the situation. Uh, and, that, and that's a very good thing. So uh, thank God uh, HIV is no longer the big issue in terms of um, uh, medical emergencies. And so that's what I stand right now. Okay. Because you just mentioned that you still see that stigma in the Netherlands, right? That people still fear it in many ways or think badly of people who have it. Um, was that ever the case in Zambia? And, and the, or was it always like, you know, this is just something that's there and we have to live with? Or Well, in the very beginning, in the, in the 90s, in the yeah. 90s. But then when it becomes part of, you know somebody for sure, you know a family member, you know a friend, you know, it's, it's, it becomes normalized. But also there was huge, huge campaign to fight stigma and discrimination. Yeah. Um, and so we have, I think, developed the technical know-how to, to, to actually deal with uh, such things, which is very funny. I was sharing some time ago with a friend that it's funny that to this day we still receive people from the West coming to talk, talk to us about discrimination. We should be the other way around, actually, uh, when it comes to discrimination and or whatever on HIV. Because we are, we, 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 in society, like it's, yeah, it's like just one has diabetes. Where we see diabetes here is how we see, oh, one is doing diabetes. Oh, okay, fine. How can you help you not forget to take your treatment when you need to take your treatment? Yeah. How can, that is the conversation. And we moved on from stigma and discrimination a long time ago. Um, and that issue is now here in the West. So yeah. instead of, I think, what, 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 what exists now that Western NGOs are going to Africa to tell them about stigma and discrimination, <laughs> it should happen the other way around. Because, I mean, even when I was seven years old, I, I knew much more about HIV and, and all these things. 
um, than people here who are mature. So the message starts at a very young age. Yeah. Uh, so the message is sent across at preschools and, and primary schools. Everybody knows and billboards and TV commercials. It's it's just something that is sort of spread in society and the need to spread love and care. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of home-based care is sort of big where I'm from and that has helped us uh, achieve these capabilities to sort of handle uh, the sketch right now. And what do those messages look like when you look at preschool and kids? What kind of, yeah, is it pictures? Is it billboards, posters, books? Yeah, it was actually real lessons. And uh, at least from the time I was there, you always had a topic on HIV. So you have yeah. uh, how it is spread. Um, this is how it is spread. This is how you protect yourself. Uh, Very factual. Uh, yeah, it was there was no jiga jiga. Um, it was like really hard facts. So we we learned hard facts at a very tender age. Um, yeah. uh, and I, and 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 I think that is really that is really important because I think there's this notion um, that we don't talk so much about sexuality back home, but it's actually untrue. There's a lot of conversation and sexuality yeah. uh, back home, um, uh, safe sex and whatnot, and how. Um, one needs to protect themselves and um, uh, free uh, distribution of uh, protection and whatnot. All those things were happening when I was in school. Uh, yeah. So, so the, we, we talked facts and uh, because the, pro- the problem at the time was eminent. So I think there was no room to beat about the bush. It yeah. was, we have this situation, this is how we go about it and this is what we can do to protect ourselves. Yeah. And also no moral component to it then. It's really like this is what's there, this is how you deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So and then at some point you moved to London and um what yeah, what was that like? What did you study there? So I because now I had developed interest in uh, um, uh in health. I really wanted to do something health. So I studied health, community and development. Uh, I think this is perhaps one of the most profound uh, intellectual uh, transformation and uh, enrichment in my career. Um, that I, I, I was under the arms of, uh, I think, a very renowned um, a professor. Of, uh, she was also big in the fight against HIV. Uh, mm-hmm. She's retired now. Uh, Catherine Campbell, um, who was a South African professor but moved to the UK a long time ago, uh, and she she had raised, she had made this program at the LSE, and she she sort of used that to train lots of um, uh, people who are now very big in global health response around the world. So having gone through her mentorship and her leadership, uh, that completely transformed the way I looked at the world, the way uh, I saw health as it were, and uh, even just uh, the idea of coming up with responses uh, and the, the notions of, I mean, I, I, I had, I had, you know, the, the, the concept of colonialism and its effects and whatnot, but I didn't have the theoretical yeah. and the weighting of it all. So that was just at the time when everything was lumped and uh, to me and made very clear, she, she sort of made me, gave me the wording and showed me how to so that i think for me in terms of education that really is the place where i really sort of had a serious deep transformation in my and what i i represent today i think goes back to that experience um at the LSE. okay because you mentioned she was a great mentor for you yeah 
Um, what made her a great mentor? I mean, what made her a great mentor? Lots of, <laughs> lots of things made her a great mentor. And uh, number one, I think because she also understood, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from my perspective here, I don't know if others can say the same, but because she came from a, a country that was very close to mine and she understood a lot about my struggles and my views and what, so she had a, a unique way of transferring whatever I was feeling into theory or into practical intellectual ideas. And um, just the idea of just being very critical about a lot of things and being very innovative. Um, and to, to, it's easy to say that, but to actually learn how to do it is something very difficult. And I think she had a very good way of delivering that message uh, to me at least, because um, she was what, you, what we call tutor, Mm -hmm. My tutor there with the same sort of arrangement, yeah. uh, but also my professor in several uh, modules, um, and then my thesis supervisor. Um, so, and then we ended up uh, even producing my first publication through her. And uh, so she was very influential in my uh, in my seeing of the world. She gave me the lens from which I see the world today. And the things that I, I articulate these days are uh, actually, in, in more, in more cases than not, not very original because I draw a lot of my my my, my thinking uh, from that background. Yeah, and I think we all do, right? We all have professors or thinkers that somehow, when we come across their ideas, there's something about it that just clicks, that just like that helps you make sense of the world. Yes, it's beautiful when that happens. Yeah. And uh, how did you end up in the Netherlands then? So, yes, um, after that, I mean, because of my experience at the LSE, I just got interested in education. I, I just started feeling this, this, that, this is what I want to do. Um, and then I just started applying for PhDs uh, everywhere. I was just throwing applications every day, everywhere. Um, and then, obviously, if, uh, I don't know if it's the same experience for people. Very difficult to get PhDs. And, and well, I got in a few in the UK, but without funding. So I just decided, well, maybe let me just go back home and uh, and work and do something. And then um, I applied for uh, a job. I got a job in, uh, in, uh, in South Africa. I was going to move to Johannesburg. Uh, I almost signed the contract and everything was set. Uh, I was gonna fly in two months, in two weeks' time, actually. Yeah. Uh, and then from Norway, I just got a phone call uh, from Maastricht uh, from a gentleman who was very angry on the phone. <laughs> okay. Yeah, telling me that man, we've been sending you emails for a month. Just tell us if you want to take up this PhD or not. And I was confused. I was like, "There's no PhD. Everybody has rejected me, so I don't know what you're talking about." It's like, you haven't you received all emails? Like, no. And indeed, they sent me the emails, but I was just, I was exhausted of receiving uh, rejection. So when I just see a response, I just gave up. And indeed, they had accepted me and they offered fellowship and everything was going to be paid for. And I was like, oh, damn, I didn't notice. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know exactly where Maastricht is, but let's go to Maastricht. And that's uh, so how I called South Africa and told them, thank you, but uh, I think I'm going to take up a PhD position and then uh, took the train and I was in Maastricht the next week, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was uh, it was a very interesting. I didn't know much about the Netherlands. It's not a country that I ever thought 
I'd come to because if you come from this, I don't know, maybe it's an Anglo uh, uh, thing where we're on your colonized by the British. Most countries you think of going to uh, the UK, sometimes Australia and Canada and the US finish. Um, so uh, uh, the Netherlands was not on my radar. And um, there, were, there weren't many Zambians I knew that had ever worked, studied in Holland. So I had no basis. So I just moved to Maastricht without knowing what I was getting myself into. Uh, and then I loved the place. Uh, just arriving, I, I was like, "Yeah, this this is a place for me." And then I started my PhD. I'm really happy to hear that because I'm just going to show you in my office. Oh yeah, it's actually my alma mater as well. Oh yeah, yes, 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 yes. So what yeah. was so just sort of as a sidetrack? What do you love about Maastricht? Uh, I mean, I like about how cozy it is. Uh, it's such a cozy and very cultural at the same time. And I like the vibe, this good high energy. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's also because of the students, yeah. the student nature of the city is a very high energy. And because of the coziness of it all, it allowed me to make more friends. I mean, I've lived in Amsterdam more than I lived in Maastricht, but I have many more friends from Maastricht. Yeah. Um, so I I had a very good lifestyle in Maastricht because uh, I mean I I was I was everywhere I I knew everybody and uh, very easy because of the smallness of the city you're always running into each other at that event at that event yeah not so many things so you're always having uh, house parties and house dinners and so you 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 develop a lot of uh, closeness so I think Maastricht for me is a place where. Uh, you can never be lonely. You can be bored, yes, but you can never be lonely. Yeah. Whereas Amsterdam for me is the opposite, right? You can never you can be, be bored. bored, but you can definitely be lonely. Yeah. So I, I found Maastricht to be very. Yeah. So when I go to Maastricht, I feel like I'm going home these days. Yeah. Uh, because it has, yeah, it was my first point in um, Netherlands. A lot of my friends uh, also who did PhDs have stayed there. They're working for the university and whatnot. Um, and there was a big Zimbabwean community in Maastricht, which also at the time made me feel much more at home. Um, so yeah, that was Maastricht and uh, I can still love it. I go there very often. Uh, yeah, well, it's very recognizable what you say. It's the, it's the size yeah. of the city. It makes it really easy. I mean, you're everywhere really quickly. So then it's mu you're much quicker to say, okay, let's do this. Let's meet up or whatever. Yeah. I, did, I remember if I went to the supermarket, I just in line for the cash register, you would recognize three or four people and you'd have a conversation going yes it's a, it's a good place for that and um what about your research there because that's where you really started working also on uh, the health in particular you started looking on the role of community mobilization in the promotion of maternal health and women with hiv in zambia so very much going back to your roots yes yes um so the concept of community mobilization actually i think uh i can trace it a lot back to Catherine campbell um, so she, I think she, she's been a big thinker in the, in the concept in, as a response um, to HIV. Um, so funny thing is that actually I was sort of, I came through a economics program. So I was sort of, I was given my admission from SBE, which is a school of business and economics. Although I was centered at the School of Governance and then I knew at the moment that I, at the moment, I still wanted to do something in health and community mobilization. So I ended up finding a supervisor from the health faculty. Mm -hmm. And then, and then with my background on uh, community mobilization, which is a concept that I've been raised in already, 
Um, what I, does I, it mean? So it is the it is the idea that because in public health there's this notion that community and community here I mean um, especially uh, global south communities that they lack the the know-how they lack the mechanism they lack the means to solve their own health problems so all they need is assistance from the global north mm -hmm. so this notion is very um, is very much embedded in in in, in global health response um, and that's why people are accused of being very colonial nation yeah takes away the agency from locals in thinking about how to handle their own health yeah. so community mobilization is just making that more visible and how can that sort of work in conjunction with western styles in a process they call uh, cognitive polyphasia where these entities coexist democratically for the benefit of community um, because in most cases they are not necessarily mutually exclusive yeah. they are very much uh, complements so how can you increase that complementarity, uh, but not necessarily uh, eradicating whatever beautiful resources that exist in communities? Yeah. So it's very much about collaboration with all parties yeah. bringing their strengths to it. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the concept that I, I, I worked a lot with, because uh, I find that our communities, you know, um, have several uh, resources and strategies that are not necessarily made more clear at mm -hmm. some point, to some extent, and also that are not celebrated and not given the the, 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 the platform uh, to be perfected if they're not perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's just an idea that, oh, this is uh, traditional knowledge, put it aside. Oh, this is not evidence-based, put it aside. And, and that has had, a, in my view, a very negative uh, impact on our health care, on our health response, because people are fixated in attaining these Western celebrated styles at the expense of local ones. And then they cannot even get the same Western styles that they are claiming for because cost, because uh, whatever reason may exist. Um, so it is a very uh, inherent dominant idea in, in in, in response, in health response uh, in, in the global south, uh, to just look north yeah. uh, and forget local. Um, so the, the concept of community mobilization, how do you bring the local and the global to speak to each other in a democratic way, in a way that benefits community to the, to the greatest extent possible? Yeah, okay. And what did you find for the particular case in Zambia with the mothers? Yeah, so I was um, I was looking at women living with HIV. <clears throat> so what happens to them during the process of maternity? Um, and I was looking at a lot of people living in very extreme rural areas. So I went. So it was also um, a bit of an ethnographic study to some extent. It's a it was a combination of methods. Uh, so there was some quantitative analysis, but also um, an aspect of uh, ethnography which I found more useful. But, but that's also because of my biases. Um, so I, I lived in this community to, to sort of understand what strategies they use to care for women who are living with HIV during the process because um, you, there's a need to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Mm -hmm. um, and because of their, 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 their status, uh, they can sometimes be more prone to other illnesses if they don't receive enough care. So how do they use resources at a, 
at that at that, at that level uh, to promote the health of these women. Uh, and so I was discovering that there were several strategies in 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 different contexts uh, about how they relied on uh, experienced mothers who've been doing this thing for years in the community who the healthcare will not even respect because they are not trained as medical doctor, mm-hmm. right? And they were just, um, and at the time, there was a law that was uh, actually preventing any care from people who are not trained. So by trained here, I mean who has a degree in nursing yeah. or a degree in midwifery, um, which is very ironic because there are, first of all, no people who are like that in this area. Yeah. Their and is on these very uh, resources. And they've been doing it for many years, 40, 50 years, um, with all the knowledge and with all the strategies. Um, and I found that very useful. So there were those that stood up in the gap when that there was not. Uh, there was initiatives about um, coming up with their own forms of ambulances in which uh, every, every, every night there's one person in charge of the ambulance, which they yeah. call this ambulance. Uh, and that person is the person in charge in case there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an emergency uh, in the community. That person is the one who is volunteering to take uh, that woman to the healthcare center if there's yeah. need, which in some cases is located 20, 30 kilometers, 40 kilometers away, right? And those are resources that are not really brought to the fore to say, how can we utilize them more? How can we perfect them? Because they obviously are not perfect, but how, how instead of getting rid of them, mm-hmm. yeah. and so community mobilization was about exposing these elements. Um, and, 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 and so there's a lot of that in my, in my, in my PhD work, uh, but with different, uh, strategies or across different communities that I was based in. Yeah. So it's really about making clear, making obvious all the resources that are already there. Yes. Uh, and making use of them and valuing them properly. Yes. Do I summarize that correctly? Yes. That's, uh, Okay. And uh, well, you moved to UCU three years ago, two years ago, something yes. like that. Um, and uh, you're teaching so many things here right now. It's, it's really yeah. quite an impressive list. Yeah. There's an international political economy, a level three course. Of course, the very popular course, political economy of the global south. Um, there is a module on qualitative research. You have a new summer course this uh this year about sexual reproductive health and rights in the global south which is a new course uh, or it's not new but last year it was taught online obviously but this year it will actually include internships uh in zambia i imagine yeah well not zambia only uh but all over southern africa so all of that okay what which students should take this and why um this is a course um, about unlearning, in my view, the harmful strategies or legacies or trends, if you like, in in in, cooper- in development cooperation, where, uh, like I said, a lot of where we are from, we are pictured as people not having agency, as people not having good strategies. So we need some form of help from from the West, right? So this this uh, program is actually intended to demystify that, to sort of question that narrative, whether indeed we we lack uh, strategies to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
So the program is, a, is, is structured in a way that students are going to go there and learn how people within their difficulties, which there are many, um, manage to respond to their issues yeah. in very context-specific ways. Yeah. And also, because I'm very passionate about this idea that I really, particularly Africa, I really strive so hard um, to, to raise the humanity of Africans that we are also equal to the task. We are also uh, as useful as any other people around the world. And we should not be pitied as people who need to be assisted. Um, and so to, to, to clear that out, uh, I'm creating these uh, internship opportunities for students to go there and learn, not to help Africa, but to learn from Africa. Um, um, because uh, I've discovered over, over the years uh, that we have a lot of um, uh, experts on Africa, mm-hmm. Europe, uh, but it's unthinkable to have an expert on European affairs from Africa, right? So, and they should be there. I mean, they should. Uh, you know, they definitely should, right? Because I think if we live in a fair world, that's yeah. how we should normalize things, yeah. right? I'm sure you see this in case there's a terrorist attack where in Kenya or whatever, they'll get some expert from Belgium or from London or from Amsterdam yeah. to have an opinion on the news. Uh, if the same happens in Brussels, they'll never get a Nigerian to say, oh, do you have an opinion? And those narratives in our society are so normalized. And I think that inherently leads to our dehumanization as Africans. Um, and my role here is to create platforms where our humanity is enhanced. And this, for example, is a, a small contribution towards uh, that. And students are really grilled uh, in knowing that they're not going to serve Africa. Um, they are there to learn from Africa for a change, and they are there to appreciate the difficulties, the strategies that we use um, in a way to solve to solve our own issues. Yeah, it's about listening. Yeah, yeah, basically. So that's that's in a way how the the, the internship is structured. And there is because um, there is a small module beforehand about power positionality and self reflectivity in international work if i remember correctly it's a very long title uh, mm-hmm. sorry i didn't remember the whole thing um how do you train students in that how do you train them for going into that situation and sort of having to change their mindset and the stereotypes and the ideas and assumptions that they have yeah so i think this is a program that uh cory and i came up with uh, cory is awesome. right uh, also featured on an earlier episode for those interested, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so it, it also, I think it is informed by exactly the example that I've just given you. Yeah. Because um, he also has, a, a, he runs a UCU in Africa program. So I, I think we come from the same background uh, and, and we, are, we are trying to deal with this pro, uh, problem through this course. So the idea of this course is to, to enable students and learn those, uh, kinds of thinking about uh, this continent that just lacks an agency and they need to go and solve these problems. So how we're doing that is uh, we're having sort of more self-learning program um, mm-hmm. that will allow students to learn on their own, but yeah. in a very guided way, um, that these things are more complex than they have made to seem out there in the, in the normal world. and. Through this, question a lot of these tendencies, question a lot of these 
um, attitudes. And we are centering it on the students themselves. So how, as a student, do I fit in this? How do I position yeah. myself if I ever work in development work? Yeah. How, how, how do I come in? How does my background come in? How do, does my reality come in? The worldview that I've developed uh, about helping people who are sort of poor, how, what, what hierarchies exist and how can, can I learn for myself? So it's yeah. basically a, a, a personal learning journey yeah. for anyone who is interested in international development. Yeah. So that's basically what this program is about, basically. Have you seen that changing over the years? Because if I compare this approach to what was maybe taught 15 years ago when I was at uni, it, it's quite a different um, approach. I mean, it's much closer to what it should be for sure. But do you see that shift happening on a wider scale? Um, my view is, to be honest, uh, I'm very grateful that there's more hunger mm -hmm. to talk about these things. When I moved to Holland, which is not even a long time ago, these conversations were not normalized. Yeah. The fact that even at UCU, I can even have a course of this nature yeah. speaks for itself that there's because in a sense sometimes it might seem to some people um as threatening uh, because mm -hmm. conversations must be honest and not very easy to have yeah and uh, and i'm sure you can see even uh, when people talk about critical race theory in the us or whatever you can see the resistance towards the need to address some of the hierarchies whereas in uh in the actual sense it's an idea to create equality for mm -hmm. everyone yeah. uh, and 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 even though that seems like a simple thing to ask for, it is not easy for people to absorb. Yeah. Uh, but over time, um, I've seen a huge change, a huge change in uh, in acceptance, in in learning, in questioning, in thinking, in talking about it. And decolonization is featured in several other aspects, and that for me is an exciting thing because I do not expect this thing to happen overnight in fact I'm, I'm 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 sort of more than amazed to see the kind of change i was very pessimistic when i was joining um uh, this movement mm -hmm. uh, to see the kind of change that has happened over time i, I think it's tremendously um uh gratifying but that, that is not to say that the work is done i think there's a lot of work that needs to be there are several examples within institutional responses everywhere not just in universities but everywhere on how we respond uh, to matters that have to do with people from the global south. And that change still needs to be there. And I'm, I'm just thinking of an example right now. I mean, the terrible thing, for example, happening in Ukraine uh, is a horrible conflict uh, that is just threatening uh, peaceful citizens who just want to live their lives. Yeah. And now it's created another huge out outcry and uh, uh, we have a huge problem of people fleeing conflict and becoming refugees yeah. and this conversation about ukrainian refugees when contrasted against how we talk about refugees from syria from africa yeah. you can already see that society still has a problem yeah um, so this is this is an indication that there's still a problem on how we humanize people from other races or other regions yeah. as compared to how we humanize europeans so it's um it so it, it tells me that yeah we still have a lot of work to do yeah. Um, but in any case, I think we have also achieved quite a lot. Uh, 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 and that is an encouragement for me to keep going because 
to see that at least things are changing, how we're talking about it, what we're being receptive about uh, has changed over time. So it pushes me to go further uh, in this, but uh, whilst reminding me that there's still much more we need to do uh, to normalize our humanity all across the world. Yeah, normalizing the humanity. That's a perfect summary, I would say. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank okay. you for having me. You're more than welcome.